So the Torah commands the people, when they enter the promised land, to conquer and settle this land, divide it among the 12 tribes, and settle the land. Now Moshe very much wanted to go into the promised land, but Hashem did not allow him to do so. Instead, his successor, Yehoshua, Joshua, led the people into the promised land. In the years since, we initially, all of Israel, lived in the promised land, However, we were eventually exiled from our land, forced out of the land. And yet we have an obligation, a mitzvah, to try to go back to the promised land. And we still have a mitzvah to settle the land. There is a debate among scholars as to whether this is one of the 613 commandments. Ramban, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, um, believe that this commandment to settle the land of Israel is one of our 613 commandments. However, to be clear, it is not a commandment that everybody is obligated every, to do everything they can to follow, such as wrapping the tefillin, or hearing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, every Jew is supposed to make every effort they can to get the tefillin, and every Jewish male to wrap tefillin. Every Jew is supposed to make every effort they can to hear the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. Um, so there are mitzvahs that we are obligated to do everything in our power to fulfill this mitzvah. Um, it is clear that settling in the land of Israel, while it is a mitzvah, in other words, it is encouraged and you follow God's commandment when doing so, we are not required to drop everything a move to the land of Israel, evidenced by the fact that many Jews, including great scholars and Jewish leaders, did not drop everything throughout history and go to the land of Israel. And yet it is definitely a mitzvah to and encourage, and we are encouraged to move to the land of Israel, to settle the land of Israel, or at least support settlement in the land of Israel. So Jews initially entered the land with, Josh, with Moses' successor, Joshua or Yehoshua. When they initially entered, conquered the land, they settled the land, and they lived there uninterrupted for about 850 years. But after 850 years, we are told because of our sins, because our ancestors worshipped idols and rejected God, because of that, the land was captured first by the Egyptians, then later by the Babylonians. And in a series of um, conquests of the land of Israel, um, Jews were exiled from the land. And they were forced to leave the land of Israel. Non-Jews were brought there to live there, in small numbers at least, um, or the land remained mostly desolate. Jews were forced out of the land. Most of them were moved to, were forced to Babylonia which is Mesopotamia or modern-day Iraq. That's where most Jews were forced to live. We once did a class on the Jews of Babylon. Uh, but Jews were forced to live there. But from there, they spread throughout the Babylonian Empire to places like Syria, Persia, Iran, um, even Afghanistan and India. They moved to what today would be Turkey, then it was Asia Minor, um, to Egypt. They moved all over. After 52 years of being forced into exile, the Persians allowed Jews to return back to Israel and rebuild the temple. But very few actually did. Over the coming decades, there were multiple aliyot, or groups of Jews that went back to Israel. Most notably, a large group went, led by 
Ezra. We once had a class about Ezra, who went to settle the land of Israel. And over time, over decades and really hundreds of years, the community in Israel continued to grow until at its peak, during what we call the Second Temple period, the Jews in Israel numbered in the millions. And yet, throughout this period, throughout the Second Temple period, majority of Jews lived outside the land of Israel. The largest diaspora community, the largest Jewish community outside the land of Israel throughout this time remained in Babylon, in Mesopotamia, in modern-day Iraq. But Jews lived all over. Jews lived in Egypt. Jews lived in Syria. Jews lived in Turkey or Asia Minor, in Greece, in Italy, in Rome, in Persia, um, in Afghanistan, India. Jews lived all over throughout this period. Um, although there were by now, because Jews kept coming back to Israel and they increased naturally, um, there were during the Second Temple period, at least late Second Temple period, there were by now millions of Jews living in Israel. Low millions. However, in the year 69 or 70, the temple was destroyed. When the temple was destroyed with the destruction of the temple, um, the communion in Israel dwindled. Firstly, the destruction of the temple, the war that led to the destruction of the temple itself killed as many as a million Jews, died just in the war. So there was devastation in the land. In addition, as a result of the devastation resulting from the war, um, it was hard to live in the land. There wasn't much. It was hard to, people were very poor. And so people moved out of the land in order to be able to make a living for their family. So they moved to other places. Yes, Louise. Sometimes, sometimes, depending where they went. But now most Jews were either in the Roman Empire or the Persian Empire. Most of the ancient world during this period, this is about the, you know, the early, about 2,000 years ago, is either the Roman Empire, which covers the entire Mediterranean coast, or the Persian Empire, which covers modern-day Iraq and Persia, and Iran and Afghanistan, and going all the way to India. And so they were in one of those two empires. About 60 years after the structure of the temple, there was a second rebellion known as the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. Many, many hundreds of thousands of more Jews were killed. Many more fled. Following the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, there was persecution of Jews in Israel. So many more fled. With time, again, the Jewish community from numbering a couple million before the destruction of the second temple is now dwindling. It's really gone down in number. <laughs> By the time Christianity began to gain popularity in Israel, among Greeks, that is, in Israel, in the early 200s, the community in Israel was now significantly smaller. We don't have numbers, but it had become significantly smaller. It had been really eclipsed by now by the Jewish community in Babylon, which has always been very, very large, and the Jewish community now in Israel is fairly small. In the early 300s, the Roman, Rome adapted Christianity, and Israel becomes now a center for Roman Christianity. Until then, it had been a backwater, kind of a, a small province in the Roman Empire. Now becomes a very important place, because it's the birthplace of the religion of the empire. 
And so Jews are persecuted in Israel even further, and the community continues to dwindle. By the early 600s, the Jewish community in Israel was very, very small, probably in the low tens of thousands. From numbering in millions, it was now in the low tens of thousands over about 600 years of Roman persecution. Most Jews at this time, there was the largest Jewish community by far was in Mesopotamia, which was, um, or Iraq, Babylon. Um, probably majority of Jews in the world lived in Babylon at this time um, because it was under Persian rule and the Persians were much, much more tolerant than the Romans. Um, Jews also lived around all over the Persian Empire and beyond and throughout the Roman Empire. But the Jewish community in Israel itself was, had become very small by this time. In 611, the Persians captured Israel from what was then the Eastern Roman Empire, also known as Byzantine. And uh, the Persians captured Israel. And they invited Jews to move to Israel. They didn't want the Christians there because they were Romans, they were Greek. Um, and so they invited Jews to move, and it appears that Jews did move in somewhat large numbers from Babylonia or areas in the Persian Empire to Israel. But it didn't last very long, because just 17 years later, the Byzantine or the Romans captured it back, and when they got there, they killed most of the Jews. So 14 years after that, in six. 34, when the Arabs captured the land of Israel, um, the uh, Arabs who had just now captured, just recently captured the Persian Empire, now capture the land of Israel and Syria from the um, Byzantines. Um, when they arrived, um, there were almost no Jews in the land. Uh, possibly no Jews at all in the land as a result of the um, Roman massacres of Jews following their recapture, reconquest. So when the Arabs came, there were no Jews. It was, there were possibly a few in a small, you know, kind of outside of the main areas, uh, outside Jerusalem. But there were, if there were, there were very, very few Jews, if any, in the land when, um, when the Arabs came in 634. The Arabs invited Jews to settle. The Arabs at this time, led by the successor to Mohammed, his son-in-law, his name was Omar, Caliph Omar. Um, he invited Jews who had helped, the Jews had helped him capture the Persian Empire, and he was indebted to them. And he invited Jews to settle the land of Israel. And Jews began to settle the land of Israel in the 600s. Um, they were still second-class citizens because they were not Muslim. But they were allowed to settle the land of Israel, and they did in fairly large numbers. Um, the exact numbers we don't have, pro pro probably in the tens of thousands, maybe even in the low hundreds of thousands, Jews settled in the land of Israel. And there was a pretty stable, strong Jewish community, again, totally new, because when the Arabs came, there was no one left from the original. But there was a pretty strong, stable Jewish community that lasted for almost 500 years under Arab rule. The Arab rule, some, some caliphs were better to Jews, some weren't as good to Jews. There was also some wars between various um, Arab rulers, 
but relatively the Jews were okay, and there was a significant stable Jewish community in the land of Israel throughout this time. However, that settlement that had started with the Arab conquest of the land of Israel fell, uh, came to an abrupt end in 1099. In 1099, this is almost 500 years after the Arab conquest in 634, in 1099, the Pope called a crusade. And the crusade was essentially Christians from Western Europe or from Northern Europe um, that um, came and they killed many Jews. We once did a class on the crusades. They killed many Jews along the way in Europe. They killed many Jews in, um, in Constantinople on the way. Uh, and they continued, and when they, then they came to the land of Israel, where they wiped out most of the Jewish community that was in Israel when they captured the land of Israel. They did not allow Jews to settle there. The next 160 years from 1100, the next 160 years, were years of war and chaos. There were multiple crusades, and there were times that the Arabs managed to capture the land back, and the Crusaders came back, um, and um, Jews were, it was very chaotic. There were periods Jews were not allowed to settle there. Even when they were, it was very dangerous, or it was very difficult. And so during this time, though, many Jews still came and tried to settle in the land of Israel. Maimonides, we know, came in the, early, in the late 1100s, came to Israel. It was, he found that all, very few Jews living there and unsafe to settle. When he came, the Arabs were actually in control, but it, was, it had gone through many wars and it was unsafe. And he ended up, although he initially had intended to settle the land of Israel, once he got there and he saw how bad it was, it had essentially become, the land was totally destroyed by war, he ended up going to Egypt, which was more stable and had a strong Jewish community. God willing, one day we'll do a class on the Jewish community of Egypt. So, you can write that down. The Jewish community of Egypt. Another example is Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, a sage from Barcelona, also from the 1100s, who wrote many poems about the land of Israel, some of which we read on Tisha B'Av, and longed to go back to the land of Israel. In the early 1200s, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi came to the land of Israel, uh, made it all the way from Spain, from Barcelona to the land of Israel. According to our tradition, he made it to the gates of Jerusalem, and there at the gates of Jerusalem, he was trampled to death by an Arab on a horse. Many of the Baalei HaTosfot, many of the Jewish scholars in France and Germany also came during this time, most notably in France, um, also a subject of its own. Um, in France, in the uh, mid-1200s, the Talmud was burned in Paris, and the leader of the Jews of France at the time, Rabbi Yechiel of Paris, moved together with his entire yeshiva of 300 students, moved to the land of Israel and settled in Akko. This was again during a very, very difficult time um, when the Crusaders and the, um, and the, um, 
uh, uh, the Crusaders and the Arabs were still fighting over the land. The Mongols came in the mid-1200s while the Crusaders killed all the Muslims and the Muslims, the Arabs would kill all the Christians, both would kill Jews. The Mongols killed everyone. The Mongols arrived in the mid-1200s, uh, but they were finally defeated in the 1260s by the um, Mamelukes. The Mamelukes were a um, Arab group that ruled Egypt um, for many years, and they c captured Israel in the 1260s. And so when they captured Israel, once the Mamelukes captured Israel, um, now finally it ushered in a period of stability. However, Israel had been totally destroyed in the 160 years of Crusader wars and then later Mongol invasion. Um, is the land had been totally destroyed. Much of the city was in much of the cities were in ruins. The villages were in ruins. Much of it was abandoned. There were very very few people living there. And so, um, the, while the Mamelukes controlled the land, they didn't make much of an effort to build the land. Jews at this time arrived. Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, the Ramban, who we did a class about not too long ago. Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, who was a rabbi in Girona, Spain, and was forced to leave after a disputation, after he was forced to debate Christians, was forced to leave, made his way to the land of Israel in 1267, right after it was captured by the Mameluk Egyptians. And he found the city of Jerusalem totally desolate, totally destroyed, with two Jews living in the city. And the city was, most of it was abandoned buildings or destroyed buildings. There was no one living there. There were a handful of Christians, a handful of Muslims, but not a lot of people even living there. And he settled there in the city of Jerusalem, invited other Jews to come, built the first synagogue in the new settlement, and really restarted settlement in Israel. So continuous settlement in Israel today can really be traced back to the period of the 1260s when the Ramban came, right after the Mamelukes captured the land of Israel. And over the next 250 years, Jews gradually in very small numbers moved to the land of Israel. It was relatively safe but it was mostly in ruins. It was never really rebuilt. There was no industry. There was no commerce. There was, it was not very inhabited. There were very few villages. The towns and the cities did not really have much business to speak of. And so um, it was safe, relatively safe, but there was really no way one could support oneself. And so there was a community, it probably numbered in the thousands, maybe the low, at most the low tens of thousands. It was a fairly small Jewish community at the time, during this 250 year period. That changed in 1516. In 1516, the Ottomans, about 60 years earlier, the Ottomans were Turks. The Turks came from Central Asia and captured what today we call Turkey, that had been Byzantine, that had been Greek, right? It had been Greek Rome, and it was captured by the Turks, and they captured Constantinople. 
um, which is the big city today known as Istanbul. And then they expanded their empire, creating a massive empire covering much of Eastern Europe, um, southern Ukraine, all around the Black Sea, and um, going all the way into Mesopotamia, Iraq, and they captured the land of Israel in 1516. They eventually capture Egypt and much of North Africa as well. And another thing the Ottomans did was, the Ottomans loved Jews, at least the early, early Ottomans. And so when the Ottomans captured Constantinople in 1453, just a couple decades later, the Jews were kicked out of Spain in 1492. So the Ottoman emperor, King uh, Solomon he was called, um, or they called themselves, um, um, forget, the, the Ottoman uh, ruler uh, the, uh, allowed, opened up the empire for Jews and encouraged Jews to come settle in the Ottoman Empire, and indeed, most Spanish refugees that came from Spain and Portugal did settle in the Ottoman Empire, settling in modern-day Turkey, Greece, Yugoslavia, or the Balkans, Bulgaria, um, as well as in Syria, Iraq, and in the land of Israel. So after the capture of Israel in 1516, Jews began to settle in the land of Israel. Large numbers of Spanish and Portuguese exiles settled in the land of Israel. Now these Jews were mostly urban Jews who had lived in Spain, in the big cities, um, in Spain and Portugal. And the Spanish Jews settled mostly in four cities in Israel. Why these four cities, we're not 100% sure, but they settled mostly in four cities. In Jerusalem, which is, of course, the holiest city, in Hebron, which is the second holy city, in Tiberias, which is, uh, was always a major, one of the largest cities of Israel, and in the town of Tzfat. And in fact, the settlement in the town of Tzfat became, with time, the largest Jewish settlement in Israel in the 1500s. And um, with them, they brought with them craft and trade skills to help support themselves in the land of Israel. The um, Spanish Jews were mostly craftsmen, tradespeople. Um, they had skills, and they brought their skills um, making fabrics or importing and exporting. They brought it to the land of Israel, allowing themselves to support themselves within the land of Israel. And this is really a golden age for the land of Israel in the 1500s, when under Ottoman rule, it was relatively safe. Jews were free. Um, they were second-class citizens, as all not Muslims were in the Ottoman Empire, but they were relatively safe and free and flourished within the land of Israel. And uh, many, and most, it was, again, mostly Spanish and Portuguese Jews. However, while the Ottoman Empire lasted for hundreds of years, starting already in the 1600s, the Ottoman Empire kind of lost a lot of its strength. And as a result, it became slowly decentralized. It was a very, very large empire. And the, the sultan is the name of the ruler of the empire. The sultan of the empire in Istanbul or Constantinople did not have really control over the far-flung areas of the empire. 
And what ended up happening was the local rulers ended up, it became very decentralized, and local rulers had much stronger control. Now, as a result, the mo local rulers tended to be co corrupt. They were much easier to bribe. They tend to be corrupt. Some of them liked Jews. Some of them hated Jews. So depending on, uh, as a result, um, often they were very corrupt and impoverished the land with high taxes or demanding money or demanding bribes. Um, and, um, and often they persecuted Jews. And as a result, the community in Israel really dwindled a little in the uh, 1600s, 1700s because um, it was no longer a center for commerce, it was no, not, no longer stable, it wasn't so safe anymore, there wasn't any more law and order as much because of the corrupt rulers. Um, the rulers themselves were crooks often, um, there, so there wasn't so much law and order, um, Jews weren't treated that well anymore, and as a result, while there was still a continuing, co continued community throughout this period, it wasn't such a large Jewish community. But starting in the early 1900s, at this point again, there were Jews living in the um, land of Israel, um, probably at this point in the low thousands, maybe 10, 20,000 Jews, um, at most in the land of Israel, almost all Sephardic Jews, descendants of Jews who had come from Spain in the early 1500s. Starting in the early 1900s, in the early 1800s, sorry, in the early, sorry, starting in the 18th century, in the 1700s, already late 1700s, small groups of Ashkenazic Jews began to settle in Israel. Most notable, in 1777, just a year after we declared independence here, in 1777, Reb Mendel of Vitebsk, who was a major Hasidic rebbe, Hasidic leader in, in Belarus, Vitebsk is a town in Belarus, led 300 families from what was then the Russian Empire to move to Israel. And this was the first major Ashkenazi group to move to the land of Israel for hundreds of years. Now, how would this group support themselves? 300 families, you're talking about, you know, maybe between 1,000 and 2,000 people. How would they support, a very large group, um, almost a town, how would they support themselves? So what they did is, before they left, they created a fund called Kolel Rabbi Meir Balhanes, the Kolel or the fund, the trust, named after the sage Rabbi Meir Balhanes, who is a great sage who is connected to raising money for the land of Israel. And they created this fund in Russia. And they made appointed trustees of the fund in Russia who would, and they gave out the tzedakah boxes. They were the inventors of the tzedakah boxes. They gave out these boxes. They said everybody should put coins in these boxes, and then once a year they would send out representatives to collect the money in each town and city, and they would bring it to a central location to the trustees who would keep track of how much money came from each town, and then it will be sent to the land of Israel annually, and that will support these families in the land of Israel. And that began a new movement where Jews would move to the land of Israel, 
and they would be supported by Jews outside of the land of Israel. And with time, various other trusts, the initial kolel, Rabbi Meir Balanes, the initial trust started in Belarus, in northern Russia. But with time, other communities and other lands, Jewish communities, developed their own trusts supporting their members of their own community that moved to the land of Israel. And with time, there were a dozen or so trusts that would support Jews in the land of Israel. And this was a big change because this meant that you could move to Israel and not worry how you would support yourselves. Until then, Jews who moved to Israel were very concerned. How would they keep themselves supported in the land of Israel? There wasn't much industry and it was pretty corrupt. How do you support yourself? Now there would be a fund and there would be regular, uh, what they would call mishulachim messengers that would come from Israel to collect the money in the various places and they would take the money collected and bring it back to Israel and then there would be people in charge of the trust in Israel and they would distribute it to the various families that were there living in the land of Israel. Now, what did the people in Israel actually do? So they sat and studied Torah a whole day. They were able to study. They didn't have to work. Their needs were cared for. Some had businesses supplying the locals, supplying food, supplying clothing to the locals. But there was no industry to bring money in. But rather, it was simply money was coming donated by the diaspora communities. And this started again in the late 1700s. And this allowed for many, many more Jews to go in large numbers to the land of Israel. Annette, you had a question? Okay. So in the first group that went, again, was 300 families in, led by Rabbi Nachman Levitebsk in 1777. They came to Israel. They settled in Tiberias. At the time, there was a ban on Ashkenazic Jews living in Jerusalem. And uh, so therefore, they settled in the town of Tiberias. A um, couple decades later, because some years earlier, there had been some Ashkenazic Jews who had come to Jerusalem and borrowed money and gotten in debt and not paid back their debts. And they didn't like Ashkenazic Jews. In the early 1800s, in 1808, a group of 150 families from Lithuania went to Israel, led by Rabbi Nachman Mendel of Shklov, which started a community known as the Prushim. Um, and throughout the early 1800s, small groups, large groups, kept moving to Israel from various places, from Ukraine, from Lithuania, from Belarus, from Romania, um, from Western Europe, from Holland, um, even from um, Sephardic, but mostly Ashkenazi communities started moving in larger numbers to the land of Israel. So, um, so uh, during this time, the, most of these Jews settled in the same four cities that originally had the Sephardic communities, where there were already small Sephardic communities in Jerusalem, in Hebron, Hebron, in Tzfat and Tiberias. Um, there was a large Chabad group that moved to the um, land, that moved to the land of Israel in the early 1800s, led by the um, granddaughter, uh, by um, Rabbi Yaakov Kuleim and his wife, Menucha Rachel Slani, moved to Hebron, where they settled, um, built a community. And there were various groups throughout the early 1800s, throughout the 1800s, that moved to the land of Israel. Um, 
In the mid-1800s, there was a famous Jewish benefactor, who I hope to do a class on in a couple weeks, um, called Moses or Moshe Montefiore. Moshe Montefiore was a British Jew who was extremely, extremely wealthy. Um, he had no children, him and his wife had no children. Um, and they decided to dedicate their lives to, they were also very prominent in British, in the British community, British life, you know, very well respected in Britain. And they decided to dedicate their lives to helping Jews around the world. And they did. They traveled much of their, for, uh, much of their older years around the world to various communities helping Jews, both using their influence to force, um, uh, to pressure leaders, non-Jewish leaders, to treat their Jews better. Um, wherever they went, they were treated like a king and queen. Um, Yehudis Montefiore, Montefiore's, Moshe's wife, um, Judith, le, um, has a diary where she writes about her travels, fascinating books, book. And um, the, wherever they went, they were treated like royalty because they were what today we'd call billionaires, um, the wealthiest Jews in the world. And uh, everyone wanted their money, including the non-Jewish rulers. So, you know, the non-Jewish rulers treated them like royalty. And uh, they were able to do a lot to help Jews everywhere in the world, throughout Europe, throughout the Middle East. Um, but they particularly had a special place in their heart for Israel. They made five journeys to the land of Israel. This is in the mid-1800s when, you know, journeying to Israel was not easy. They made five journeys to the land of Israel. Um, wherever they went in Israel, they were also treated by the Jews and by the non-Jews and by the local rulers uh, like kings and queen, like a king and queen, uh, you know, treated like royalty. Um, and, but they worked very hard to improve the lot of the Jews in Israel, uh, both by paying off local rulers, by, but they also tried to build industry in the land of Israel. Famously, they built a windmill in Jerusalem to grind flour, which is still there in Jerusalem. When you go today, that windmill still stands. They also, Jerusalem at the time, had really grown. Um, by this time, there were tens of thousands of Jews living in Jerusalem by the time they came in the 1840s, 1850s. Um, and so they wanted Jews to move outside of the city and build neighborhoods outside of the old city. So they built the first neighborhood, Yamin Moshe, right outside of the old city of Jerusalem. And they continued encouraging the building outside of the old city to expand the city of Jerusalem. And indeed it did. It built outside of the original old city of Jerusalem. So this was, so all the Jews that moved during this time, mostly Ashkenazic Jews between um, about 1777 and 1882, um, there were um, tens of thousands of Jews moved. They lived mostly in these four cities, um, Tzfat, Tferia, Jerusalem, and Hebron, although they did live a little bit in Jaffa, in Akko, and a couple other cities, but mostly in those four cities. And um, they had, um, you know, they, they had built in each city large, sizable Jewish communities, not very large, but sizable Jewish communities. And now the Jewish community had become majority Ashkenazic. Until then, it had been mostly Sephardic, but now it was majority Ashkenazic, and there were tens of thousands of Jews at this time living in the land of Israel. And these were known as the Yishuv Hayasham, the old settlement. Um, more, about half of these Jews 
um, lived with local businesses. In other words, they had local stores or import businesses, you know, kind of local businesses providing for the locals. And the other half were living on the, what was called the chalukah, the public trusts. In other words, the money donated by Jews outside of the land of Israel, this system that had been going since the late 1700s. So, in 1881, a new movement began in Eastern Europe. It was called Bilu. And this new movement decided it was part of a movement to get Jews out of what was called the Pale of Settlement in the Russian Empire. Jews, there were some five million Jews crowded in a very narrow area um, in the western edge of the Russian Empire. Um, what is now um, Ukraine, Belarus, uh, parts of Poland and uh, Moldova, uh, Lithua uh, uh, and so Lithuania. So those areas um, were what was called the Pale of Settlement. There were five million Jews crowded into this area. Jews were very, very poor, persecuted. There were pogroms. Jews wanted to move out in great numbers. Um, some Jews were moving to the new country, started moving to the United States. But there was a movement to get Jews to move back to the land of Israel. Except if you're living on the Chalukah, if you're living on the public funds, there's a limit to how many people could move. You can't move in very large numbers. Their idea was that they would build farming settlements in Israel. There was very little farming at the time. It was mostly Jews and Christians and Muslims. The Jews were supported by the uh, money coming from outside. Christians were also mostly involved in various churches and monasteries and supported by money coming from outside. Um, the Muslims was, lived in some villages, some were farmers um, or were living were, uh, public servants working for the local leaders or were, um, uh, uh, or were living or, or providing services to Jews and Christians. But there wasn't much industry um, or even farming, to, agriculture to speak of. And so the um, Jews decided, and this, this description, the land of Israel did not have a lot of people at the time. Um, there were probably less than 100,000 people um, or maybe around that total in the land of Israel at this time. It wasn't a very, it wasn't very, there weren't a lot of people in the land. Um, and a big percentage of that was Jewish, if not majority. So, um, so the, the movement decided that they were going to build agricultural settlements to farm the land of Israel. And so they managed to enlist the support of Edmund Rothschild, who was one of the wealthiest Jews in the world. He lived in Paris, um, as well as an organization in Paris called Alliance Israelite. Alliance Israelite was an organization, um, or Kol Yisrael Chaverim in Hebrew, um, was an organization built in Paris by wealthy Parisian Jews that built schools and trade schools mostly in, um, in first in French territories in North Africa where Jews lived in large numbers and then later throughout the Sephardic world. Throughout the, um, so they also supported this new agricultural idea. And so Jews began to live in large numbers. Soon afterwards the movement became political with the call of Theodor Herzl um, to create a Jewish state in the land of Israel. 
And so the Jews began to move in large numbers. And over 33 years, between 1881 and 1914, about 60,000 Jews moved to Israel as part of this new movement to settle Israel. And these Jews mostly did not live in the cities where Jews, where the old settlement was living. They mostly built new towns, new cities, cities like Tel Aviv and the Petach Tikva, Rishon Litzion, were some of the early cities that were built around, um, uh, and or other cities around, they built cities around um, the land, um, purchased land and built farms, factories becoming, over time, becoming self-sufficient. They didn't have to rely on public funding. So this lasted until 1918. Uh, 1914, 1914, World War I broke out. Uh, World War I, um, Israel was hit very hard. There were battles over the land of Israel. And um, the British finally in 1918 took control of the land of Israel. Now at first, they let Jews come in without limit. Now the British were given control of the land by the League of Nations with a mandate to create a Jewish state. It was called the Mandate for Palestine. And so at first, they appointed a Jewish governor of Israel, Sir Herbert Samuels, a British um, official, but a Jewish-British official. And the, the goal was to create a Jewish state. However, in 1924, the British switched gears and decided they no longer were interested in creating a Jewish state. They were going to try to retain control um, and keep a balance between Jews and Arabs in the land of Israel. And they were going to stop Jews from coming in or limit the number of Jews that were able to come in. And they worked very hard on limiting the number of Jews, issuing certificates or only a limited number of visas for Jews that were allowed to come in, only a couple thousand a year. Jews nevertheless continued coming in by getting certificates, by coming in illegally, over the next 15 years, 250,000 Jews still managed to move to Israel, even though the British were officially limiting it. Now, until then, until World War I, most of the Jews that came to Israel before World War I were mostly Eastern European Jews, both in the first movement, the old settlement before 1881, and the new settlement after 1881, most of them were Eastern European Jews. Eastern European Jews continued to come following World War I, but after the Hitler rose to power in 1933, most of the Jews coming were now German Jews fleeing Germany. They had nowhere to go. And so um, as many as 100,000 German Jews moved to Israel during this period. Now, unlike the Eastern European Jews, who were mostly very poor, they had limited education, limited skills. The German Jews who were coming were mostly assimilated German Jews. They were Jews who had university degrees, who were engineers, who were doctors, who were lawyers, who had, you know, professional you know, professions, professors from universities. These German Jews began building universities. They were now able to build hospitals. They were able to, they were engineers. They could build um, industry. And so they brought a lot of know-how, a lot of higher-end 
sophistication to the Jewish community in Israel that the Eastern European Jews didn't have. They brought in the 1930s um, when they were forced to flee. Um, Jews continued to come throughout World War II and after World War II, Jews were mostly banned from coming, but continued to come nonetheless. By 1948, there were about 600,000 Jews living in the land of Israel. Now, I should mention that during this time, as the land of Israel became more stable with the large aliyah, with the large movement of Jews to Israel, and as industry began to grow in Israel, um, Arabs began to move to the land also in very large numbers. Why? Because the surrounding lands in um, Egypt, in Syria, in areas nearby Iraq, the, the uh, economy was very, very bad. And young people couldn't get jobs. So they began to move also in very, very large numbers to the land of Israel because in Israel there were a lot of jobs available because there were a lot of people, there were a lot of Jews building industry. Some of them would, had no problem hiring Arabs or they could build their own businesses and sell to these Jews. So as the population grew with, of Jews, many Arabs began to grow as well in the same way. Uh, many Arabs began to come and the Arab community began to grow as well. So that by 1948, there were about 600,000 Jews and about a million Arabs living in the land of Israel during this time. After the British left, Israel became independent. And now Israel opened its borders and anyone can move to the land of Israel. Anyone who wishes could move to the land of Israel. At the time, there were some 500,000 Jewish refugees living in Western Europe. Refugees from the Holocaust that had survived somehow, whether in the, in the camps, in the concentration camps, or by pretending to be non-Jewish or as partisans, or by fleeing to the Soviet Union. Um, they had, many non-Jews had come, had many uh, Jews had survived, and there were about a half a million Jews living in DP camps, mostly in Germany or in France and Italy, in Western Europe. Most of those Jews were now came to Israel. At the same time, there were many Jews living in Arab lands, in Yemen, in Iraq, in um, Tunisia, in Libya, in Egypt. And with the creation of the Jewish state, suddenly the Arabs turned on their Jews. They started persecuting Jews and rioting and pogroms, and they started killing Jews in Arab lands. So large numbers of Jews from Arab lands came also as refugees to the land of Israel. And within about three years of the creation of the state, about a million Jews moved to Israel, almost tripling the existing population. Within about three years from when they created the state. Jews continued to move in smaller numbers after that to the land of Israel. Following the Six-Day War in 1967, there was further persecution um, in Arab countries. Mo the, the Arab countries that still had large Jewish communities, most notably Morocco at the time, still had a very, very large Jewish community. Jews were heavily persecuted. And following 1967, almost all the Jews of Morocco moved to the land of Israel as well. Um, following 1967, Six-Day War, many Jews in the United States were excited by the euphoria of the Six-Day War and inspired, and many Jews in the United States moved, tens of thousands moved to Israel as well. Um, and that was not coming as refugees, but coming as an ideal. 
because they believed in going to the land of Israel. In the 1990s, about a million Jews from the Soviet Union, after the Soviet Union collapse, were able to come to the land of Israel. Today, Israel has well over six million Jews living there, and it is probably the largest Jewish community in the world. It has also become a you know, densely inhabited um, and highly developed country. Um, and it has, once again, it is once again a settled land. So there is still a mitzvah to settle in the land of Israel, but we don't all have to pick up and pack and move to Israel. We're not required to do so, but it is still a mitzvah, an ideal, to live in the land of Israel if one can. Um, even if one does not live in the land of Israel, one should still support Jews in Israel in every way they can. And that's by giving money to Jews in Israel. There are still kolels, there are still trusts for Israel. In fact, the original Chabad kolel that was created in the um, late 1700s. The original Chabad Kolo that was created is still around today. The original trust to support those living in the land of Israel. They no longer support you know, people living there because it's owned uh, in that sense, you know, where people, they just, um, pe where people just, they just support people, but they do have um, camps and soup kitchens and um, things to help the poor of Israel, and they still, you can still support them today, and thereby support their many other funds, of course, to support Jews in Israel today. Um, many, many such charities to support the land of Israel today. Uh, we can also support Israel simply if we're not going to move there by visiting Israel. And uh, one should definitely, if one has not, one should definitely visit Israel. We will be visiting Israel. We're going to be doing a mission, community mission to Israel, God willing, in March. And if you haven't been or haven't been for a while, I definitely would encourage you to join our group going next March. Um, and uh, God willing, um, very soon, Moshiach will come. And we do believe when Moshiach comes, we will all return back to the land of Israel and all Jews will be brought from the four corners of the earth back to the land of Israel.